Welcome to the Psych Central Show, where each episode presents an in-depth look at issues from the field of psychology and mental health, with host Gabe Howard and co-host Vincent M. Wales. Welcome to the show, everyone. My name is Gabe Howard, and with me, as always, is Vincent M. Wales, and we are proud to be live at Healthy Voices 2018. Healthy Voices 2018 is a first-of-its-kind three-day event that brings together online advocates from across various health conditions for an opportunity to learn, share, and connect Sponsored by Janssen Pharmaceuticals, a Johnson & Johnson company, the conference seeks to provide valuable content such as tips to further engage and grow an audience, thought-provoking conversation, and networking opportunities for online health advocates. Did that cover it, Janssen? Are we good? The lawyer's happy? Excellent. Uh, And we are joined today by four incredible uh, panelists. Them. Listen, we operate primarily in the mental health space. This, the Psych Central show is, is primarily a podcast for people living with mental illness, people who want to learn about psychology. And as a person who lives with bipolar disorder, I face a lot of adversity. I'm discriminated against because national news stories paint people living with mental illness as violent or responsible for, you know, just everything. And I believe that as a patient, I was being ignored because of the mental illness. As recently as a year ago, I believe that society, doctors, and the general medical establishment were stigmatizing me for that reason and that reason alone. Last year was my first year coming to Healthy Voices 2017, and I learned two very important things. One, I was not alone. It turns out that everybody living with chronic illnesses feels disenfranchised, afraid, and that they just need help. We needed a community, a community that I found at Healthy Voices. I also learned, unfortunately, that the grass wasn't greener on the other side. (laughs) I genuinely believed that you all had it good, and I had it badly. I found a community. (laughs) Yay, we're all ignored. (laughs) And that's why we wanted to put this panel together. We wanted to discuss the things that we have in common, rather than the things that are the differences. The real reason Gabe felt alienated was because he's a ginger. (laughs) <laughs> and a fair. giant that's fair giant. <laughs> all right first up we have marissa zeparelli and she advocates for the lupus community and marissa why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself sure hi everyone thanks for having me here uh, my name is marissa i like many people that i've spoken to at the conference um, i have really had health issues since i was a child And we didn't really have a diagnosis at all. Back in the 70s and 80s, they didn't test for lupus very often. And everything kind of came to a head when I turned 23. I actually got hit and run by a um, drunk driver as a pedestrian. And I spent about a year in recovery. And it was during that time um, that was sort of my trigger. All the symptoms that I'd had growing up came out at once, and I was diagnosed with systemic lupus. So I've been in journalism and broadcasting for about 10 years, and I also started Lupus Check around the same time. It started as a blog, and today we're a nonprofit. Um, one of our biggest initiatives that I love, uh, we have a college scholarship program. We've given out five college scholarships to women in the United States with lupus, and we reach about a half a million people a month. Thank you so much for being here. Next up is Rashid Clark, 
who is an influencer in the inflammatory bowel disease space. Welcome, and please tell us about yourself. Uh, thank you, Gabe, and thank you, everyone, for having me here. Uh, also, former broadcaster, so I guess that's maybe why we were invited up here, so hopefully what I remember from broadcasting still rings true. Uh, I was diagnosed with ulcerative colitis, a form of infl inflammatory bowel disease, in 2008. And at the time that I was experiencing symptoms and at the time of my diagnosis, I had never heard of either of those terms. And that was one of the biggest challenges for me was to try to get other people to understand just what I was going through because I had to understand it myself. And at the time I was at uh, the University of Toronto, I was in a professional writing program and I was lucky enough to be able to structure a lot of my assignments on writing about ulcerative colitis and living with inflammatory bowel disease. And I ended up turning that into a book of short stories that was published in 2011. And things got really bad for my health after that. So I actually had a lot more material after the book was published. Um, and that's when I took to the online space and started writing about my experience having surgery, having my colon removed, uh, living with an ostomy for nine months, and for the last four years living with something called a pelvic pouch, which has been uh, very good to me, and I'm very grateful for that, and again, just grateful to be here. Thank you for being here, Rashid. Next up is Daniel Garza. And he advocates uh, in the HIV community and the um, Klosterman community as well. Yep. Well, good morning, everybody. Thank you for having me. Thank you, guys. Uh, my name is Daniel Garza. I am an HIV advocate. I was diagnosed with AIDS, actually, when I was uh, about to turn 30 in September of 2000. So I'm 17 years into it. Uh, a couple of years ago, in 2015, I was diagnosed with anal cancer. Uh, two years later, I had my stoma surgery. And uh, other than that, I am a public speaker. My specialty is in education. So I go to high schools, colleges, universities, and talk about HIV prevention, sharing my story along with the cancer side of it. Uh, I'm also a host of a podcast, so I'm going to guess, like Rashid, there's a reason why we're here, because we can talk on a microphone. <laughs> You're mostly here because you agreed to do it. <laughs> uh, it's always the end of the list for me. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here. And last but certainly not least, the well-known, the beautiful, the exceptional, and who also agreed to be here as long as I read that exactly, breast cancer survivor and advocate, Anne-Marie Otis. Anne-Marie, please tell us about yourself. Thank you, Gabe. I, as they were saying, they're reporters and he does whatever. I thought in my head, well, I don't do any of that. And um, so I don't know why I'm here. Um, I was diagnosed with breast cancer, and I decided to turn that diagnosis into advocacy the only way I knew how, and that was, was by being loud and uncensored and very raw, and it worked. I started a blog, mainly because my family is extremely nosy, and I didn't want to answer all their phone calls, and all of a sudden, I was getting a response from people all over the country, and they were connecting with me, and it wasn't because of my spelling. So I pushed it even farther, and I'm pr very, very proud of that. I've shared a photographic journal of my cancer process, and it was um, very revealing and uh, took me down to my raw, sensor, uncensored self, and I'm very proud of that. Since then, I advocate for MS because, hey, if you can't have breast cancer, why not get MS too, <laughs> if my life didn't suck worse. So I have that, and I also started a non-for-profit where in my local community, I give back to all cancer patients in a financial way. I help pay for gas cards to get them to treatment. I pay for their parking. We have even paid mortgages. We've paid for pet care, just giving back in ways that insurance cannot do. 
and I advocate for mental health as well. So I'm very happy to be on this panel, and thank you, Gabe. I will uh, give you your stipend later on. Thanks, Emery, and to all of you for being here and being willing to be open and honest with the, the grilling we're about to give you. And also, again, thanks to Healthy Voices for allowing this to happen. Mm -hmm. Really, come on, they agreed to be here. Bigger, bigger! <laughs> Slightly less Michelle. Yeah. Don't give her any more sugar. <laughs> it's the coffee, I think. Anne-Marie, we want to hit the ground running. Uh, and we want to ask a tough question. Uh, as you know, I'm a mental health influencer, and I see massive amounts of money, just massive amounts of money that breast cancer raises, and um, it makes me incredibly jealous. I feel that your life must be easier. Must. I'm, I'm underlining must. It must be easier because there are times of the year that I can't leave my house without seeing everything pink for breast cancer. What are your thoughts on this? And, and please talk a little bit about life being easier because, after all, you have a popular illness. I do. I have a marketable illness. Um, so first, let me say that before I was diagnosed with breast cancer, I bought into the whole save second base and save the tatas bullcrap, and I realized quickly when I was diagnosed that it isn't about saving the boobies, it's about saving the person. Um, when you see all that pink crap that's going around during Breast Cancer Awareness Month, it is literally pink crap. You are just buying something that is pink. That product that you're purchasing gives approximately 1% of funding to some cancer organization. They do not give back. So while you see that, I look at it as marketing. You took my cancer society and marketers and you sold it and it pisses me off. I, I do not b buy into that. It makes me highly upset. I also take it to the part that it's sexualization. When you Google, and I advise you all to do that during Breast Cancer Awareness Month, type in breast cancer on Instagram, you will see nothing but sexualization of breast cancer. There is no awareness, there is no ex education in it. And that is a huge problem, massive, because having your breast amputated is nothing sexy. Trust me. And the last part to that is factual. 138 people today in the country will die from breast cancer. That is not pretty. That is not pink. That is not, that is real. The bigger fact to this is I now have a one in three chance of a reoccurrence of becoming metastatic. So while I did buy into that to begin with, it is farther from the truth. Anne-Marie, thank you so much for your candor. And, and obviously, I bought into it as well. And without coming to Healthy Voices and without meeting you, I'd still be buying into it, still to this very day. And I'd be jealous of you, because after all, I, I'm sicker than you. And that's the kind of thinking that we're trying to avoid in our well, society. maybe. So hey, thanks for educating this, me. It happens a lot. This on? <laughs> this episode is sponsored by BetterHelp.com. Secure, convenient, and affordable online counseling. All counselors are licensed, accredited professionals. Anything you share is confidential. Schedule secure video or phone sessions. Plus chat and text with your therapist whenever you feel it's needed. A month of online therapy often costs less than a single traditional face-to-face -face session. Go to betterhelp.com forward slash psych central and experience seven days of free therapy to see if online counseling is right for you. Betterhelp.com forward slash psych central. 
Okay, so thank you again. And what we're going to be doing now is sort of a free-form sort of questioning. Many of the questions that we're about to ask came from all of you. Thank you for filling out the cards. Any of you, or all of you, can answer any of these and just let us know who wants to go first. So the first question that we have is, how did it feel when you were diagnosed, and what impact did it have on your life? Can I go first because no one else is saying anything? You yeah. sure can. <laughs> uh, as I think as I mentioned uh, off the top of my intro, I just felt more than anything confused by what I was now diagnosed with because at the time I had done all the things that you're supposed to do to not get sick, you know, eating well, exercising, not uh, having any vices, or at least not too many of them, and uh, yet you still get sick and you still get a chronic disease and it was, it was hard to make sense of that. And I think for me, having something like inflammatory bowel disease where there weren't a whole lot of answers about what actually causes it, my first thought was, what did I do? And I had a lot of feelings of guilt for the first several years, and I think I still kind of grapple with it today in wondering just what was it that I did to bring this disease on myself. And there really isn't an answer for that because we don't know. And I tried to tell myself not to feel guilty about it because had I known, don't eat this, do drink that, don't do this, don't do that, then I would have not done those things or I would have done those things to prevent the illness in the first place. Uh, but uh, the lack of understanding about the disease, not just in the general public, but from the people who treat the disease itself, was one of the most frustrating things uh, when I was first diagnosed. Uh, uh, she says, are you people going to make me go again? I'll, I'll, I'll go if you want me to. I'll go. So when I was first diagnosed <laughs> with one of my illnesses, um, with breast cancer, the hardest thing was telling my kids. I really felt like I was ripping their innocence away from them. Uh, it was the worst thing I ever had to say to my children. And actually, my son wrote a blog post about it, and I, he felt as though I lied to him. And that was very hard. And I still can't talk about it because... Lying to my kids is something that I would never have done. And I hate that cancer made me do that. So. Thank you so much, Anne-Marie. Um, uh, well, mine is, I guess, a two-parter. The, when I was diagnosed with AIDS, uh, I was 108 pounds, 110 pounds, and my T-cells were about the same number. Uh, I was in some sort of denial. I, I had an idea. I was... I, I, I knew my life. I was a drug addict, an alcoholic. Um, I had unprotected sex. I didn't know my partners. So I was in a sort of denial, like, okay, so I have AIDS. Okay, fine, cool. Uh, my, I guess for people who know me very in my form, my only concern was because my hair was falling out. Will my hair grow back? And I couldn't walk, so can I walk again? And that was, that was my ex question to the doctors is my hair coming back? And the doctor's like, yes, but do you realize you have AIDS? I'm like, that's fine, but can I walk out of here? And the doctor's like, yeah, but you, are, you, are you listening? You have AIDS. I'm like, there's medications. I'll be fine. I'm like, I'm good. Not realizing that I was too skinny to take care of myself. And um, ultimately, it took me about six months to finally somewhat recover. But I, I think now, I think back, I think that's what helped me overcome that initial diagnosis is not really falling prey to it and being a little vain and wanting my hair back. Um, when I was diagnosed with cancer, uh, this was about 15 years later after AIDS, uh, cancer, 
again, I kind of had an idea that was what's going on. So on the way home from the doctor, I looked at my boyfriend, Christian, as he was driving. I go, you know, you realize when I get home, I'm video blogging about this. And he was like, well, of course you are. You're Daniel. I'm like, yeah. So my vid it lasted 30 days because after that, I just couldn't do it anymore. But I started blogging. And I, I realized, again, AIDS taught me to be resilient and share my story and not be ashamed of what was going on. And um, anal cancer just kind of reinforced that. And I figured if I'm going to be the butt of any jokes, I'm going to start those. And uh, yes, that was a butt joke. Um, Thank you so much, Marissa. So I remember when I was diagnosed, I was actually relieved because I'd been sick for so long and I had no idea what was going on with all these different symptoms. But that quickly turned into, I'd say, shame, ashamed and uh, somewhat angry because at the time, a lot of uh, lupus patients are diagnosed in their childbearing years. So I was actually just about to finish nursing school and I had worked really hard for that. Um, and my entire life changed. I had become like hospital bound and then wheelchair bound and I had a couple of strokes and next thing I know I had a nurse at my house helping me eat and take a shower. Luckily I had an amazing family, uh, amazing husband who's actually here with me. And that's why everyone in this room is so important because I thought how many people don't have that support at that initial time of diagnosis and your whole world is turned upside down and you have to find this new normal and maybe you have to find a new career or you have to move. Um, maybe you can't be in a two-story house any longer or whatnot. So that was one of the reasons I started Lupus Check and why I'm really excited about Healthy Voices and I'm thankful for everyone that, that you know, does advocate for a disease because it is in that moment when your entire life changes that you need people around you to help you. Thank you all so much. Uh, the next question that we have also from the audience, uh, and it, we're going to change directions a little bit. It says, many people live with illnesses, and many people are diagnosed with you know, scary illnesses, long-term illnesses, terminal illnesses, but most don't become advocates. What made all of you become advocates? Anne-Marie? Okay. <laughs> Daniel? Okay, um, well... I think what made me, especially with AIDS, what made me become an advocate was when I was, I'm from Texas and my, I'm first generation, so my parents don't speak of English and don't really understand, and my family being, uh, were Catholic, very conservative, never talked about sex, so when I was diagnosed, I started volunteering at the agency where I received services, and my family was very much against it. I'll put it this way, when I was when I had to move from Houston to my sister's house, I was given the, the maid's room, basically, away from the family. I had my own sheets, my own towels, my own silverware uh, plates, because they couldn't touch Theo's stuff. Don't touch it, because you might get sick. And it bothered me. I was, uh, the shame and the stigma came from my family first before anybody else. So I thought, if I need to teach anybody about HIV and AIDS, it's, it's my family first. And what I would do is I would bring pamphlets in Spanish from the agency and put them on the magnets in the refrigerator. Or I would put them by the microwave. Or I would leave them in the bathroom, just where everybody could find them and read them. Finally, about three months in, they read them. And uh, we would have a luncheon at the agency every Friday for families and allies. And finally, my sister showed up one day. She surprised me. So I realized then 
that I, I, I advocated for myself to my family and I opened a door. And again, if you know me, all I need is an open door and I'm running in. Uh, and 18 years later, I'm here with you guys and I'm still talking. So. And we're glad you are. Thank you. So I guess for me, I was, it was the night before my, my mastectomy and I have like awesome doctors. They really advocated for me. I had a couple of misdiagnoses and I, they're, they're awesome. But doctors only have a couple 15, 20 minutes with you and they really don't provide you with the information that you need. And they told me I was going to have these drains, and I just kind of was like, okay, I'm going to have drains. And then about 2 a.m. before my surgery, I, I thought, what the hell's a drain? So I decided to Google that. Don't Google things the night before anything. <laughs> and I lost it. I was in tears. I was sobbing. I didn't know what was going to happen to me. And I thought in my head, I know what I need to do now. I literally, at that moment, thought all of this needs to be documented. Other people need to understand that. Because what we do... We take the scary out of it for the next person going through this. And I thought, there is someone just like me sitting somewhere petrified of what's about to happen to them. And they need to see this. They need to understand that a drain is not some drawn picture in a pamphlet that my doctor is handing to me. They need to see it. They need to understand what's going to happen through chemo and radiation. And that on day five, you should be doing this. And I really wanted to do that and give back. And I will tell you that... I did sit my whole family down and explain what I was going to do because, you know, I have teenagers and they're boys and I was about to let it all out. And they supported me and I was so proud of them for doing that. And they stand by it. They're, they're advocates with me and it just makes it even better and it makes it even more important to me. So, Thank you. Uh, I think for me, when I was diagnosed, I had never met anyone in person that had lupus, and my family had never heard of it, and uh, I actually wound up meeting one girl within three years that had it at the time, but I went to the library, and I went to Barnes & Nobles, and there was only one book for lupus. This was 17 years ago, and it was a medical, like completely medical-based book, which was okay for me, because I had the nursing background, but what about if someone didn't have that, and... uh, you know, there wasn't a lot of information online. So even though now I knew what lupus was and what medications were available for it, I didn't have the social information or the mental information as far as, you know, what happens when your friends stop calling you because they don't understand that you can't hang out with them all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, How do I explain to my family that I can't be out in the sun because it actually can put me in the hospital and we lived in Fort Lauderdale at the time. Uh, so there, were, there weren't answers for these things. You know, how do you date when you have a chronic illness? So I love to write, um, which is why I wound up in journalism, I suppose. And I figured, okay, I'm going to take this on myself. And that's how it started. Thank you very much. Rashid? Now, for me, I am not entirely comfortable with the term advocate. And I think it's probably because I feel somewhat undeserving of that title. Because for me, when I started writing... Number one, it was school assignments, and I just wanted good grades. Number two, I was trying to make sense of the disease for myself. And number three, I was writing about myself because I'm an only child and I'm narcissistic. (laughs) So I love stories about me. And that was what uh, kind of got me started in all of this. And I honestly don't really see myself very much as an advocate, just as someone who enjoys stories. And I'm better now because I don't just tell stories about me. I do actually, you know, try to find other people who have IBD. I try to share their stories. I try to 
write stories about them. And I try to share stories within our community because I think that's incredibly helpful to people who are diagnosed to just, even if you're not going to get a chance to meet someone face-to-face, as I've had the privilege of doing now with many of the IBD advocates here, just having those stories out there is helpful to know what uh, what the disease is like. And for me, I kind of went into the same maybe sort of a mindset as Daniel at the beginning that, okay, I got this chronic disease, but I'll just take some medication and everything will be fine. So it's not a big deal. But when things really started to go awry in my health, that's when the storytelling really helped because I wanted to let people know this is serious. This is a disease that people should know more about. I should know more about because I didn't think that I'd be losing my colon in my late twenties. And just having those stories out there was uh, was just important for me to make sense of things for myself. And the storytelling has always been a big part of what I do. It's just something I enjoy. And that's why I'm maybe not the best advocate out there as, uh, as some other folks, but I just like to, to share the stories because I think it's important. Thank you. Advocacy does take many forms, Rashid, so we, we're on your side there. Oh. Thank you, everyone, for listening to part one of two. You can catch part two next week. And remember, you can get one week of free, convenient, affordable, private online counseling anytime, anywhere by visiting betterhelp.com slash psychcentral. See you next week for part two. Thank you for listening to the Psych Central Show. Please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you found this podcast. We encourage you to share our show on social media and with friends and family. Previous episodes can be found at psychcentral.com slash show. Psychcentral.com is the Internet's oldest and largest independent mental health website. Psychcentral is overseen by Dr. John Grohall, a mental health expert and one of the pioneering leaders in online mental health. Our host, Gabe Howard, is an award-winning writer and speaker who travels nationally. You can find more information on Gabe at gabehoward.com. Our co-host, Vincent M. Wales, is a trained suicide prevention crisis counsellor and author of several award-winning speculative fiction novels. You can learn more about Vincent at vincentmwales.com. If you have feedback about the show, please email talkback at psychcentral.com. There are few words more misunderstood and misused than OCD. Imagine having unwanted thoughts stuck in your head all day no matter how hard you try to make them go away, and then having to pretend that everything is okay despite having to feel crippled inside. That's OCD. One in 40 people suffer from it globally, but there's hope. If you have OCD and need help, you can get better with specialized treatment. NoCD offers effective, affordable, and convenient treatment for OCD and is covered by many major insurance plans. Go to NoCD.com to learn more. That's NoCD.com.